Um, I entitled today's message, The Crushing Power of Compromise. And indeed, all of today is going to be be about compromise. This is actually not a a thing where you read it and go, wow, ancient letter, really cool history stuff. That's kind of neat. Never knew that story and move on. This is actually supposed to be talking to our lives. Every one of us has compromise in it. I certainly know that I do. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. Conforming in one area alters your whole shape. Conforming in one area alters your whole shape. In other words, if there is a shape or a boundary that is you, when one part moves, that's altered the total. We've all been taught about compromise growing up. We have little phrases that describe it, although we don't realize it's talking about compromise. For example, a chain is as strong as its weakest Link, how do you know that? Well, we all just end up remembering this stuff. We always thought that had something to do with merely strength. It's not. In my opinion, it has to do with compromise. You know, the word integrity means to be sound throughout. One break in a dam wall would cause undue pressure on every other point, and it tends to cave. That is our integrity. That is our lifestyle. When we go through life, we are tempted and have lots of opportunity to have small breaks. We view them in a compartmentalized way where it's kind of like, I only wrestle with sin in that area. And we try to mask it off and think that it's just some little thing that has nothing to do with the sum total of who we are. That's completely ignorant. No, of course, when you break in one area, undue pressure hits every other area and you tend to begin to fall like dominoes. Compromise is so dangerous. What normally happens in my life is that Satan will do kind of a one-two punch to me. He will hit me overtly one time. And while I am trying to reel from that and deal with him, I think and somehow the attack is done. What is actually occurring is there's an insidious attack that comes in second, which is the real attack. The first one was just trying to distract you. The second attack slides in, and then after you've gone through a difficult time, you feel exhausted, you feel tired, you feel like you deserve a break, you feel like you deserve a treat, and temptation becomes all the more strong. That's almost always when I fall. It's rarely the overt frontal attack. It's usually the, and now I need a break, I need something for me. That's usually when I fall. It's always about compromise. And in my life, I could sit here and list out on the screen for you all the areas that I compromise in my life. And I can swear to you, you don't want me to be your pastor. (laughs) The only encouragement I have is that your list is just as long. (laughs) So the deal is, is that in real life, we're going through and we're making concessions. We're caving in little areas and we keep calling them little. And as long as they're little, they're not a big deal, right? Because it's little. It is a big deal because it ends up crushing everything. It ends up ruining everything. Understand that when we are disobedient in a tiny percentage, we're still disobedient. We're still lawbreakers. We're still in violation. Praise God that Jesus died for us. It's the only reason why we still have freedom and hope for the future. But let us make no mistake to compromise is unacceptable and yet we're doing it every day i would hope this message is very very personal to you as it certainly was to me if you haven't turned there already turn with me revelation chapter 2 verse 12 now i'm going to read the story or the letter excuse me to pergamum then i'll pray for the word then i'll kind of tear it apart and show you what what i've learned and then we're going to read the second letter then tear it apart so that's how it's going to go this morning and Uh, We'll see if we get out of here on time. Probably not. Let's move on to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Right. These are the words of him who has the sharp double edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there, meaning in the church, who hold to the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Do you understand any of this stuff? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for allowing us to dive into your word, that you would even uh, allow these things to be written down, that we could engage with them as a family and try to sort them out and, and to know not only who you are, but what you've done and a bit about our future and a lot about our present. And I just pray, Lord, that you would use this time to change us into the image of your son. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Um, I have to admit to you that in when I first read through these letters, there's a number of things in there. I was just lost. There was no way I understood it. I didn't know what hidden manna was. I didn't know what a white stone was. I didn't know anything about this new name. I'm going through. As a matter of fact, in both letters, they refer to Old Testament stories that I thought I pretty well knew. I went back and read them, and I was totally confused. So understand, I, I realize that when you're reading through some of this stuff, you go, gosh, I don't think I'm fully getting it. I'm not either, okay? So that's why I have to go out and do the research, and then hopefully we can understand a little better. So please don't assume that somehow I have all the answers and you don't. That is not true. Everything I do, you can do as well. So let's dive into this. Revelation uh, chapter 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about what that could possibly be, and we were kind of left with three uh, good options. Could be literal angels, guardian of the seven churches. Could be the local pastor or someone that was in charge of giving all the information to the church. Or else it could very well be the spirit of the church or the personality of the church saying, and to Bridgeway, and we know how they are right to this. That's the option. So what is it? I can leave that back up to you. But to the church in Pergamum, Anybody familiar with Pergamum? Uh, nowadays, it has a modern name of Bergama. It's still a city, still exists over in Turkey, but we don't talk about it. Nobody knows this. But back in John's day, it was enormously popular. It was the capital of the whole province. Remember that when Rome took over a piece of Asia Minor, they call that whole thing Asia. That was their province of Asia. The very capital of that whole region was Pergamum. So Pergamum was really, really popular. It's called the most important city in all of Asia. And there's all these fantastic titles. Well, first of all, it's 15 to 20 miles in from the Aegean Sea. So it's off the coast, a little bit more towards inland. It's on a thousand foot high hill. As a matter of fact, from the top of it, you can see the Mediterranean Ocean, which is 15 to 20 miles away. So you have this amazing view. On this hill, shaped like a cone, were temples all over the place. One rather dramatic one right on the face that we'll talk about in a moment, which was the temple to Athena. And at the very bottom was the altar to Zeus, which I'll actually show you some pictures of here in a moment. But it actually had a couple claims to fame. There's a couple other reasons why everybody knew about this city other than just being the capital of this area. First of all, it had the second greatest library in the known world. That's a big deal back then. When, when you would write different things, they would write on papyrus and they would roll things up into scrolls. This particular library had over 200,000 volumes. Well, for an ancient city where writing is not done very often... That's a huge collection. It was second only to Alexandria of Egypt, which was the greatest in the world. And this is a huge pride thing for them. And as a matter of fact, the second thing they became known for ties directly to their library. And here's what it was. Because of the pride that you had in being the greatest library, there was a lot of animosity between the two cities, Alexandria versus Pergamum. Well, the king of Pergamum, his name is Eumenes, he decides, I want to have the better library, so the best way to get a better library is to rip off their librarian. So he lures their librarian away with money and says, come work for me in our city. 
and you can bring a bunch of stuff. People will start bringing their volumes here. We'll become better than Alexandria, and then, yay, we win. Well, Ptolemy, the leader of Egypt, heard about this. How do you think he felt? He was a little ticked off, so he decides to throw the librarian in prison. He throws him in prison, says, you ain't going anywhere. How dare you make a deal with the enemy? And you know what? As a matter of fact, we're done with Pergamum. We are going to embargo all papyrus shipments. What does that mean? It means you don't get any more writing materials. You're all done. How's your library going to work now, buddy? Right? That's what he immediately did. Why? Because when they wrote, they wrote on papyrus, which you would take this, this, um, almost, uh, they call them bulrushes. Basically, it's little water plants that look like water lilies. You pull them out, you cut open, take the meat out, hammer it out flat, dry it. And that was your writing material. And it was called papyrus. And it only grew primarily in that region at the Nile River banks. Well, where's the Nile River? It's in Egypt. Well, that kind of ruins it if you need to keep shipping in all your writing materials and they embargo you. They shut you down. Said, no, you're never going to get any more stuff from us at all. Well... We all know the famous phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. They had to come up with a new writing material. So Pergamum took skins of animals, dried them, smoothed them, polished them, began to write on those. That was called vellum, or as we know it now, parchment. Parchment came from the word Pergamum. They created a whole brand new paper that ended up after centuries dominating the whole world. Papyrus was done and they win. So there you go. You to put our librarian that we tried to steal from you in jail. Well, we'll just take over the world. Right. I mean, it's just ridiculous going back and forth. But sure enough, they became famous because they created parchment, which became the main writing style for everybody. Well, the third thing that they were famous for was being the champion of the Hellenistic culture or Greeks. Even though they were under Rome now, they used to be under Greeks. And as a matter of fact, they've been the capital of the region ever since Alexander the Great, the famous Greek, came through. 150 years under Greece, they were the capital. Now, 250, 300 years underneath Rome, they're the capital. They've always been the capital. But they were really proud of their Greek heritage. In 240 B.C., the Gauls, the barbarians, tried to march in and try to take over that area. They believed it was this idea of the refined, evolutionized, you know, they had all these fancy terms for it. We are the high-level people, and these barbarians dare to try to take us over. If they win here, they could conquer the world, and we would all take a step back. So there was a massive clash in 240 B.C. Well, the Greeks won. They never let anybody forget that. They called it the Battle of the Giants where the Greek gods went against the barbarian giants. And in order to honor that, they erected this temple to Athena, put an altar to Zeus, the Greek god, the highest Greek god. They made this massive throne for him, which we're going to see here in a moment. A huge throne. Then it has fire and sacrifices being lit to him every day, all day, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And on the front, a 40 foot tall throne on the very front is a whole sculpted scene of the battle of the giants versus the gods. They're pretty proud of this stuff, right? So everybody knew them for that. The problem is is that created tremendous difficulty for believers in the area. Now, let's talk about them religiously. They had a couple main issues, two primarily, that really affected Christians. One was their worship of a god by the name of Sclepios. Asclepios. The god of healing. And you would think, well, why does anybody care that there's a god of healing? I mean, it does not seem to be a good thing. Remember... As Christians, we believe that there is only one true God. So first of all, we're not cool that there's anybody else calling themselves a God around. Second of all, there was some messed up stuff about this guy. First of all, Asclepios, the God, when he was worshipped, they made this huge temple for him. And part of it was good, part of it was bad. Back then, they didn't have modern day medicine and doctors, so they'd kind of mix it in with some of their witchcraft. So they had priests and doctors hang out in the same general area. So kind of early modern medicine was actually happening. That part was very positive. But there was a lot of psycho worship of this God. And as a matter of fact, he was known as Asclepios Soter. You know what Soter means? Savior. 
This God was called the Savior. Well, Christians are not okay with that. There is only one Savior of mankind, and that is Jesus Christ. So when they looked upon his insignia, his emblem, his logo, they were appalled that it was a serpent wrapped around a staff. Because in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, Satan is referred to as a serpent. Well, where have we ever seen that emblem before? It's still the modern day medicine symbol. It's Asclepios. That's the same symbol that we use with the serpent wrapped around the staff. You go, where'd they get that from? This guy. That's where they got it from. And we still use it to this day. Well, they didn't like the whole Satan serpent savior thing going on, but there was another major problem and perhaps the most vicious of all the problems. Because this was the center of government for all of the Asian region, the governor lived there. The governor lives there. Everybody else comes there. They are a big deal about even Rome. They're the first city that ends up uh, erecting a temple to Caesar. In AD 29, they erect a temple to Caesar Augustus. Because of the center of government, they become the center of imperial cult, the center of emperor worship. Remember what was the primary cause for all Christians to be killed in that day and age was what? Emperor worship. They refused to in that temple in their city. They were demanded every year. Every citizen was to take a pinch of incense, throw it in the fire and say, Caesar is my Lord. Do you understand now in one city we have Lord and Savior and none of them are Jesus? You now have the emperor being Lord, this Asclepios being Savior, and the Christians are just absolutely persecuted. Right in their backyard, right in their city, they're being crushed from all sides. The very seat of persecution is emanating right out of this city. So when Jesus starts to talk about how they felt, it was pretty brutal. He says this to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him. Who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now, last time we saw that, that was the vision John had of Jesus walking amongst the lampstand and a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. We know from the Bible that the sword of God is what? The Bible, the word of God, Jesus incarnate. So it's no shock that Jesus would have a sword coming out of his mouth. How he's able to divide bone and marrow and no thoughts and intents of the heart, that kind of stuff. But what it, what's interesting is in Pergamum, the idea of a sword had a slightly different connotation. Governors in the Roman Empire had the right of, and let me see if I can get this right. Um, I think it's Aeus Gladius. Let me see here. Um, yeah, Aeus Gladii. In Latin, that meant power of the sword. Either the governor had the power of the sword or didn't. Some did, some didn't. The one in their town did. That means the power over life and death. At any point, he can put a Christian to death by his will, just like that, because he has the power of the sword. Isn't it interesting that Jesus shows up and he says, actually, I'm the guy with the sword. I don't care what man can do to you. You need to worry about me. I have the ultimate sword. I'm the one that divides everything. I have the power. He says, I know. And that word is oida in Greek. I fully know inside and out. I know where you live. Katoakine in Greek suggests permanent residency. The weird thing about it is the New Testament doesn't use that word for believers. Almost never. As a matter of fact, Paul the Apostle wrote at least 13 of the New Testament books, right? Never uses it of Christians. Why? Because he always pictures us as just passing through. We don't live here. We're foreigners here. And all of a sudden, Jesus uses this word and he says, I know where you permanently dwell. In other words, Jesus is getting very practical. I know you live there every day. I know that's where your home is. I know that's where your family is. I know that's where your business is. I know that that's where you dwell. I get that. And right here, where you dwell is, how does he describe it? Where Satan has his throne. What does that mean? What do you mean Satan has his throne? By the way, can you guys hear that big feedback whenever I talk really, really deep? Yeah, that's kind of scary. Okay, sorry. I, I'm not doing that on purpose, just to let you know. Where Satan has his throne. What does he mean about ha Satan having his throne there? Well, there's actually a number of options. You know how I go through and I teach and I give you a bunch of different options. Um, there's actually six options. Let me, let me fly through them for you. The first one is the most popular, and it is 
that great altar to Zeus that I told you about. Uh, as a matter of fact, Dan, can you go ahead and throw up the first of these slides? There are three slides I have on this. First of all, this is what the mighty temple would look like up on the hillside. This was, this was Pergamum and there was a massive temple to Athena. Well, do you see, uh, go ahead and hit the second slide there. It's going to center in on one portion. See that right there? That was the huge throne of Zeus. It was actually known as Zeus's throne and it was enormous. So let's take a close up to that. Go to the next slide. This is actually what it looked like up close. Do you see that thing? It's massive. It's enormous. When you look at the thing in front of it, remember I told you this is the battle of the gods versus the giants. This is 40 feet tall. So you got to understand how big this thing is. It is one of the first things when you walk up the city. When I was over in Pergamum on some of my travels, I went over and walked right on where that was. It's all torn down now. But you can walk right on that platform. You can see how it sticks out and everybody could see it. As a matter of fact, it was there in that location when I, we were all walking around the ruins that I looked down and about a 100 yards away from me, one of the other guys on our tour group, uh, was taking a picture and leaned like this and knocked over one of the ancient pillars. So I will never forget that place. All these Japanese tourists were like, hey, what are you doing? You can't knock over an ancient pillar. I don't know how many thousands of years that's been sitting there. What are you doing? You know, so we left. So your first option is this it is that when he says, I know where Satan has his throne, was he referring to the great throne of Zeus? That's the most popular option. The second one uh, could merely be that it was the worship center of Asclepios known as Savior. Is that what he meant? Meaning that was the center of this Savior idea. Is it um, that it was the center of a Caesar worship? That Satan has his throne there because what was persecuting Christians mostly was the Caesar worship issue, and that was the very hotbed of it. Uh, number four, was it merely because as the administrative center of Asia, it was in charge of persecuting Christians? Does that what it means? Well, that's a good option. Number five, is it just the idolatry in general? Um, that's probably the weakest out of all options because all these cities had massive idolatry. So I'm not going to probably think that's very significant. Um, I'm going to give you a sixth one. And this one is actually my opinion. Um, it's not from all the brilliant commentators. So I need you to take it with a grain of salt. Okay, this is like, and then the dumb guy said, that's actually what I need you to do. But I, I think it's very possible, and I'm not saying this is what it is. I'm saying it's very, very possible that Satan actually lived here. And you go, well, Lance, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, did you see the end of the next verse? What's the end of the next verse say? Where Satan lives. <laughs> okay, now, you're going to go, Lance, I get that. Um, I know, but I don't think we're supposed to take that literal. Okay, here's my reasoning. Do you all understand that Satan is not omnipresent? Everybody clear on that one? So he's going to reside somewhere. I guess what my argument is, is if this is a hotbed and center of persecution and all this stuff is going on all at the same time, doesn't it seem to be that in Satan's backyard, a lot of bad stuff starts happening? And wouldn't it be that because there was a big hub of activity going on, Satan's going to reside in one location, given another one. He could have been hanging out in Jerusalem for all I know. But bottom line is, it's very possible that Jesus just called him on it and said, right now, Satan lives with you. And I just got to let you know, it's going to get ugly. So those are just six different options that you can choose from. You can certainly make up your own opinion. But he says this. He said, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Meaning you didn't cave. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. We don't know anything about Antipas, except there is a legend that was written down by Tertullian. He's an ancient historian and he's weird. So we can never fully trust what he says. We're not sure if it's legit or not. And he's calling it a legend. There was a legend that a man named Antipas in Pergamum, this same guy, was roasted alive in a kettle under Domitian. Well, that's who's reigning when John's writing this. So it's real contemporary just before. He said, listen, even when they're roasting you alive, you're not giving up your faith. In other words, Jesus is saying, wow, I love your sacrifice. And he actually calls him my faithful what? Witness. Last time you heard that, that was Jesus' name. 
He said, I am the faithful witness. In other words, he just gave his own title to a man in honor. Remember, witness is the word martis in Greek where we get the word martyr. Being a witness and being a martyr in the early church was the same thing. You just die for what you believe in. So he honored this man. One thing that was so encouraging to me is that we don't know anything about him. I think that is so exciting because usually the only way we ever value somebody's sacrifice is if they're a celebrity. No one knows who this guy is. Doesn't matter. Jesus knows. And Jesus said, you don't need to know anything about him. You need to know that I think he's a big deal. You need to understand that though you don't know about how fancy he is, I think he's good enough to put my own name on him. So there you go. I think that's impressive. Don't ever forget that everything that you sacrifice for Jesus, he knows and is written down in his mind. He said, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. We move on to the next portion. Nevertheless, you would assume that they're doing awesome. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. In other words, all the persecution on the outside, you guys are amazing. But the outside's not the problem. It's actually the inside. You have people there who hold to the teaching of who? Balaam. Who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Anybody remember the story of Balaam? No, it's not one we normally know. We only know one thing about Balaam and we don't even know it about him. We know it about his animal. He had a talking what? Donkey, just like Shrek. They're exactly the same. No, not really. If you remember the story, if you read through it, it actually shows up in Numbers and then it's talked about in Deuteronomy, it's talked about in Joshua, it's talked about in the New Testament. Balaam's mentioned a lot, but when you read the story, it's a little confusing. You can't figure out if this is a good guy or a bad guy. Half the time he seems like he's a God-fearing, wonderful man, a prophet of God, and the other time he's a complete psychopath. He's kind of like Saul. Have you ever done any studies on Saul and you get really confused? Is he a good guy, a bad guy? Same exact thing. Thing. Balaam's totally confusing. Well, the story basically goes like this. As Israel was coming off the desert, going into the promised land under the leader Joshua, they had to go root out some people that lived there. Those people were known as the Canaanite people, which meant there were many different groups. They just all lived in the Canaan area. The first people they went head to head with were the Amorites. They decided to wipe them out. Well, the Amorites were real closely tied to the Moabites. So the Moabites got nervous. They're like, great, now we have these new psycho-massive group of people, these Hebrew people, they're coming in. They just took over our buddies. Now they're going to take over us. Which is weird because that they weren't actually on the docket to be taken over, but they panicked anyway. Their king's name was Balak. Now I know it's irritating that Balaam and Balak sound really, really similar. You just got to hold them in your mind for a second. So Balak goes, oh no, we're going to get taken over. We can't take them in a hand-to-hand combat fight. That's never going to work. They're too big. We need to go sneaky. We need to go psychological operations, right? So he decides to go hire an internationally known diviner or sorcerer by the name of Balaam. He goes and hires this guy and he said, hey, I'll give you tons of cash if you will curse them for me. That'd be awesome. Because then when you curse them, then they all die and we don't have to do anything with them. Well, Balaam says, well, let me go check with God. See if I can go curse his kids. God says, no. Okay, that was easy. He comes back and he says, sorry, I can't do that. And he said, but I'll give you more money and more stuff. Well, then eventually God says, all right, you can go with him. So he starts to head out to go with him and God gets mad at him for going. That's part of the confusing part of the story. He's riding out on a donkey. God decides, I'm going to kill you. So he sends the angel of the Lord to come down with a massive sword to stand in his way. Well, he's riding a little donkey and the donkey can see big angel with sword going to kill me. Donkey says, I'm not going that direction. I'm going to go this direction. Well, Balaam gets really mad, starts beating the donkey. Get back in line because he can't see it. So they're driving along a little bit longer. And sure enough, angel stands in the way. Donkey tries to go around. Balaam beats him. Third time, finally, they're in a narrow area. Donkey's like, must get away from big sword. And he's scooting along the wall while it's crushing Balaam's leg. So Balaam just flips out, just starts wailing on the donkey. And God gives the donkey the ability to talk. And the donkey is like, what is your problem? Try to save you, man. You're an idiot, right? Well, what's so funny is his response is not, why are you talking to me? He starts arguing. He's like, you're disobedient, you know. And the donkey's like, ah! 
Well, then his eyes are open. He sees there's the big, huge angel with a sword. Balaam freaks out. Sorry, didn't know. I apologize. You want me to go back? God says, no, no, no. Just make sure that you do what I ask you to do. So they move on and he meets with Balak and he says, uh, Balak, what do you want? He said, well, can you curse these people? And he said, I don't know. I'll go try. So through sorcery, he contacts God again and he and God says, all right, tell him this. He starts uttering a prophecy and it's all blessing. And so all of a sudden the king's like, dude, what are you doing? I just asked you to curse him. He's like, I can't help it, man. That's what God gave me. We'll try it again. So he goes back, bleh, blessing again. He's like, oh, you are the worst sorcerer I've ever seen. You're not very good at this. Let's try it a third time. Blesses them and tells them everything that they're going to be victorious. Well, now Balak's really upset. So he's like, fine, I'm going home, right? And so he sends them away. And Israel begins to get closer and closer. Well, what's so weird about the story is all of a sudden it looks like everything dies right there. All of a sudden, chapter 25 starts and says, and the Israelite men began to have sexual immorality with the Moabite women. You're like, what does that got to do with Balaam? It goes on. They started having sex and intermixing. And when they were sexually involved, they started getting involved with the worship of Baal, the pagan god. That was part of how they would do it. It was sex and idolatry were mixed together. And all of a sudden they start intermingling with the Moabite people. Now they don't want to go to war with them because we're best friends. And hey, I had sex with her, so I don't really want to fight them. And, and all of a sudden this intermingling happens and God just freaks out. God throws a plague on him, kills 24,000 Israelites. He's just like, I'm just going to kill you all. All of a sudden one guy comes in and, and does this dramatic show and God stops the plague it's not until chapter 31 that there's one little comment and Israel um, and the Moabite people did it because it was Balaam's idea. Balaam came up with the idea for the ladies to go seduce the men so they could intermingle and they wouldn't get taken over. It was all Balaam's brainchild. And you're like, what? Ever after Balaam has been used as an example of a person who goes through and manipulates and causes compromise. That's why he's referred to here. All right. So it says this. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We learned about them last week, so you may have to listen to that message to know a little bit more. But what's interesting is it's likely they're the same group. Why? Because there's a play on words. Balaam means the Lord over the people. Nicholas means the Lord over the people. Oh, that's an accident. You know what I'm saying? Where you start going, wow, that's pretty similar. Why did he use those particular stories? Because they both suggest that this group is secretly causing people to compromise they were causing people to go in with the groups around them and in pergamum like all the other cities in the region sexual immorality was rampant and so was idolatry and they were getting involved in the church that was entering the church in a big way he said repent therefore meaning turn this boat around shut this stuff down get this garbage out of your church Otherwise, I will come to you and I'll fight against them with a sword of my mouth. Now, normally you would go, well, that's actually a pretty good thing. Jesus, why don't you just deal with it? I'm just going to kick back and why don't you handle it? That doesn't sound very motivating. But I will tell you this. Have you ever had anybody warn you and go, you can either take care of it or I'll come in and do it. And you go, oh, that's all right. I'll handle it. Okay. This is a warning from Christ going, if I get in there and I start tearing things apart, it's going to get ugly. Do you, this is a teaching moment, kids. Are you going to handle it or not? I'll give you 24 hours. Let's go. Let's handle this stuff. Otherwise, I'm going to come flying in and it's going to get nasty because I will start cleaning up everything. So then it moves on. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, meaning pay attention to this. If you endure, if you stay strong, I will give some of the hidden manna. Okay, no, we don't know what that means, right? Here's a bunch of guesses. First of all, we know what manna is. Exodus 16, you know the story. The Israelites are going through the desert. There's no food. They pray to God. He actually rains down a heavenly food. Weird, white, little, puffy coriander stuff. 
coriander-like seed starts showing up on the ground. When the dew melts, all of a sudden there's all this white stuff all over the ground. They could scoop it up in the morning. It followed them wherever they were in the desert. They'd scoop it up in the morning. They could make it into, uh, it was almost like wheat in the sense that you could make it into bread. You can make it into this. You can make it into that. They're doing all this stuff. God brought in quail. It was a miraculous provision for the people. But what is hidden manna? Hidden manna has three major options that you can choose. First of all, it can only refer to the fact that when you guys remember the Ark of the Covenant, that was a whole Raiders of the Lost Ark thing, the big golden box thing. Okay, in the tabernacle and in the temple, there was a big golden box. That Ark of the Covenant had special stuff in it. When they were in the desert, Moses scooped a bunch of the manna, put it in a jar. Do you remember that? Sealed it and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. Is that what it's referring to? A hidden jar of manna? Or is it referring to the rabbinic legend and tradition that says that when the Ark of the Covenant was going to get stolen, they were going to be sent into captivity. Jeremiah the prophet took that jar out of the Ark of the Covenant, hid it in a cleft of the rock in Mount Nebo. So that when the Messiah comes back, he will take the jar of manna, open it, and they will have the messianic blessings poured out upon them. Is that what it's referring to? Your third option is when Jesus was here, he said, your forefathers ate manna and died. You need to eat of the one manna that matters. I'm the bread of heaven. I'm the one that came down. Is that what he's referring to? Perhaps. We move on. He will not only give them some of the hidden manna, but he will also what? I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. There's a lot of jokes there, which I don't have time for, but the white stone like this. See this little white stone up here? Okay. What's so weird is when we look at it, we're like, that's freaky. You've never even understood that. Why would somebody have a white stone? In the ancient world, there were tons of these. For a whole bunch of different reasons. As a matter of fact, I give you 10 options. That's how common it was. After I get them to you, you're going to go, well, it kind of generally says the same thing. All right, cool. Here's where they are real fast. Rabbinic tradition says that white stones fell down with manna, precious stones. That's kind of bogus. It's probably not it. But that was a, that was a legend that when they got manna, they also got gems from the heaven. Uh, second one, they used stones to count painted stones to count, um, like an abacus, you know, you'd slide the, the beads over. Well, in the same way they would do their, um, their uh, bookkeeping with stones. And so it was kind of a ledger thing, meaning you've been counted as worthy kind of idea. Third one is when the jury would give a verdict, they'd give a white stone for acquittal and a black stone for condemnation. Just like the priest had the Urim and Thummim, one was a white stone, one was a black stone. So in other words, you've been declared innocent is what the white stone would mean. The fourth option, which actually has multiple things within it, is called the tessera. There was little white stones called tessera, and they were used for four different things. And so it could be referring to one of these. The first one was, you give this as a privilege. If you're a servant in a household, and I own the household, I give you instructions and stuff inscribed on a stone, and as long as you have this, you have all the rights to the household. So that's kind of cool. If you added to Sarah, you had the rights of the household. If you were a winning victor in a game, like an Olympic game or a Pan-Ionian game, and you won, they'd give you a stone and you could get into all the other things for free. It was like an entry ticket. Um, those were also used that when victors would win, they would hand them to their friends for the after party. You can come to my hangout banquet and go hang out with me because now we're all going to celebrate that I won. Does that make sense? Um, the last thing they were used for was that when a gladiator retired, and you guys understand gladiators fight to the death, right? So not many retire. Okay, when a gladiator retires, this means your valor is never in question. You fought to the death over and over and you made it. And so this meant you were victorious. Okay? Um, well, there's a couple other options. Back then, white stones were used for a happy day. There was a little thing where you had a jar and they'd say, some people would go, if you had a good day, put a white stone in. If you had a bad day, put a black stone in. And then you could kind of count up and see whether or not your life was worth it. That was their little thing. Um, also, the charms were worn by people or they would inscribe the name of a deity on their little white stone and carry it around, kind of like the little things that hang from people's mirrors sometimes. And you have a little stone written on there, and that means you have power over that deity. That deity would protect you. 
Okay, it was like a little pocket god. Okay, um, is that what it means? Uh, the last one is that it's merely a stone of something, and white is the color of heaven because it's a color of purity. Those are your ten choices. Uh, which one is it? Well, I mean, the idea is that all of them connote privilege, something of a blessing. Why is there a name written on it? What does the name mean? Is it like the, when the the high priest wore the ephod where he had all these stones on it and the name of each Israel tribe was inscribed? Is that what it means? Is it like when God changed Abram to Abraham, Simon to Peter, Jacob to Israel? When you get a new name, is it your new name? Now that you have a new identity in Christ, you're going to heaven, do you get a new name inscribed? Or is it that you finally get to understand God in a new personal way and his name, especially between you and him, is inscribed on the stone? We don't know. Those are all a mystery. But these are options for you. Let's turn to the second and last letter for today. To the angel of the church in Thyatira. Right. What do we know about Thyatira? Mostly nothing. Longest letter, most least known church. Um, it's basically in a city that was known for kind of being the gateway to Pergamum. It was out there and their whole job was to slow down the invading army so we can get ready. Okay. So it's kind of like you guys just lay down and then when they trip over you, then we'll go take them out. I mean, they, they were just kind of the entryway. They were in a valley. They connected two rivers. They were kind of on a big trade route. So, yeah, they had some wealthy commercials thing, but they were largely only known for two things. They were the center of the trade guilds in the area. When I say trade guilds, what I mean is like a union. You know how there's a lot of jobs that are around that you can't really get a good job unless you're part of the union. These were unions to the extreme, meaning you don't get any job unless you're part of your local union. Unfortunately, in this world, the unions were tied to gods and goddesses and were worshipped through sexual immorality and having banquets to their gods. So you could not be a part of the trade guild unless you were willing to be involved in pagan worship. Well, what that did is it left all the Christians not being able to get any jobs. So in this area, like never before, Christians were totally unemployed because they couldn't be a part of any of that. But there were people in the church that said, you know what? You need to just let all that go. God will understand. Just go ahead and be a part of it anyway. And that's who Jesus has a problem with. Let's read through the story. These are the words of the Son of God. Last time he was the son of man. Now he's the son of God. Only John uses that term in his gospel and in some of his writings. This is the only time you'll see it in Revelation. These are the words of the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire. The purifying, penetrating gaze of Jesus. Whose feet are like burnished bronze. Solid, steady, and tested. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your servants, your, per, your service, your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. That's pretty cool because they're accelerating. What was the problem with Ephesus? They needed to get back to their first love. These guys are accelerating in their growth. You think, wow, they're doing everything right. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Who calls herself a prophetess by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, into the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her, meaning join in her practices, join in her beliefs, join in her groove. I will make those suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children, meaning those who are born into this movement. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Let's pause there. Who's Jezebel? You've got to go way back in First Kings, and there's a story of a king named Ahab. He married a Sidonian girl named Jezebel. He ruled Israel, the north, for 22 years. It says he did more evil than any of the kings before him. And then it makes a comment, no one enraged God like him. He's just a psycho, stupid man. 
He leads Israel for 22 years, gets Jezebel. Jezebel immediately gets him involved in the worship of Baal, the pagan god. He sets up a temple to Baal, a temple or an Asherah pole, a worship spot for a goddess Asherah. Starts having Israel do all this worship to pagan gods. Imagine if your king, the king of God's nation, Israel, encouraged you into pagan idolatry. Well, Jezebel just goes ballistic. She loves the whole Baal thing. She loves the Asherah thing. So she starts murdering all of God's prophets. You don't kill God's prophets. Sure enough, God sends Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of all time. If you guys remember him, he comes up to Ahab and he says, we're having a showdown. God's done with this. Assemble everybody you got. Bring your 400 prophets of Baal, your 450 prophets of Asherah. Have them meet me up on Mount Carmel. We're going head to head. We're going to have a fire challenge, right? Kind of like Survivor at the end of it. Okay. Who can make fire the fastest, right? So he gets a bunch, all of Israel comes up there. There's a huge spectator. He said, all right, here's how it's going to go. I'm going to make a sacrifice. You make a sacrifice. Whatever God answers by fire, they win. You ready? Go. You first. Oh, they run around and panic and cut themselves and try to get their God to respond. Elijah starts making fun of them. It's kind of an interesting story. I like that guy. Anyway, uh, it doesn't work. So he's like, you done? Great. Can I try now? Great. God, can you show them that you're real? Wham! Fire comes down, burns everything up. And everyone's like, whoa! So he says to Israel, look, this God's legit. That God's not. Kill all those people. They go and start slaying all of them. Well, that makes Jezebel a little tense. So Jezebel says, I swear I will kill you. Elijah runs for his life. Why after that huge show of God? I have no idea. Elijah goes into hiding because he's scared to death. Meanwhile, Ahab goes back home. And he looks out his window and he goes, I would love a little vegetable garden. And he sees that there's a guy living next to him named Naboth. And he's like, can I have your land? Naboth's like, that's my family land. No, if I give it to you, then I lose the inheritance. No, absolutely not. So he goes and he won't eat or sleep. He just sulks. I can't believe I don't get a vegetable garden. Okay. Jezebel walks in. I wonder who wears the pants in the family. Jezebel walks in. She's like, what's your problem? He won't let me have my vegetable garden. She goes, is this how the king of Israel acts? <laughs> That's awesome. Just slams the guy. She's like, man up. I'll do it. Get out of the way. You want that? I'll get it for you. She writes a bunch of letters, says, let's have a fancy party, all in honor of this guy's vineyard, who you want. But what we're really going to do is just set him up to die. So she writes all these letters in his name, sends out. They have a big party right in the middle of the party. Two guys sitting on either side of him that were plants. Stand up and go, He's cursed God. He cursed the king. Everyone gets mad and they all stone him to death. She goes, there's your garden. There you go. This is this type of woman that we're talking about. Well, eventually enough was enough. Elijah walks up and he says, hey, by the way, you're done. I'm not done. Blah, 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 blah. You're done. Goes over, anoints a new king. New king steps up, starts killing everybody. Walks up. Jezebel shows up, tries to kiss up to him. She's sitting up like Rapunzel in the window. Hey, how's the new king doing? Right? And he says to the servants who are looking out the window with her, he says, you on my side or her side? We're on your side. And they throw her overboard. <laughs> ah, Splat. Dogs eat her up. Bye-bye. That's Jezebel. Now, who's this? This is Jesus' subtle way of calling out a woman in the congregation and saying, let's all be clear. We all know who we're talking about. You know what you're like. You know, you're full of garbage. You're Jezebel in the situation. You're against me. You're on Satan's team. You're done. And everybody around him, throw her out the window. Get rid of her. We're done with all this. She's leading everyone astray. She's telling everyone, don't worry about it. Just be involved in the guilds. Be involved in all this stuff. God will understand. We got grace. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. You can sin as much as you want. Garbage. Get her out. If not, I'll cause you to suffer right along with her. Then he says what? He said, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. What's he referring to? That developed into Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the view that the only way to control Satan was to be as evil as you've got to go into the depths of evil. Once you understand Satan and do a bunch of stuff with him, then you can get power over him. Who's the moron that came up with that idea? Right? But they called him Satan's deep secrets. He's like, okay, for the rest of you that didn't go down that stupid route, and you guys know what you're talking about, 
I will not impose any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over the nations, meaning you will rule with me. He will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. And I will also give him the morning star. I can sit there and go, does the morning star refer to Lucifer? Does it refer to this? Later on in Revelation, Jesus goes, hi, I'm the morning star. You're like, oh, okay. Makes it very simple. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Hey, guys. All the history aside, did you hear it? What kind of garbage have we let in our church? Who's the heretic? Me? Don't you understand it's your job to test what I say against Scripture? Don't you understand that I'm not above rebuke? I'm not above discipline? You find something that I'm teaching that you believe is not godly, is not accurate according to the Word of God... It is your job to bring it to the attention of the elders. And they must deal with me. But if I hear that you're being heretical, I'm not okay with that. We have a lot of freedom to argue about a lot of different issues in this church. We don't have a dogmatic line on everything. But when it comes to the serious issues, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, and you're teaching something other than that, that somehow Jesus Christ is not Savior, I will shut you down. I will find a way. Because we cannot tolerate that. We want our lampstand to shine bright here. And there may be a day when we have so much heresy and so much garbage in this church, Jesus just said, you know what, you're done. Bye-bye. I hope that day doesn't come. But individually, what compromise is going on in your life? I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? All the garbage that you allow, that I allow. We're letting this stuff in and we keep thinking it's no big deal. I think it's a big deal. And I wonder, you know, we kind of say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I just sit in this area over here. And all those people, they're affected by it. But really, it's no big deal. Even if it's secret and no one knows, it's affecting you. And it's draining out your effectiveness for Christ. And that's not okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning with a challenge and a reminder of your blazing eyes. That as you search our hearts and minds, you have found things that are pleasing and things that are displeasing. May we be encouraged in that which we do right and disciplined for that which we do wrong. Lord, I have watched you begin to hit all sorts of areas of compromise in my life and turn up the heat. I'm trying to submit under that teaching. Lord, I pray that all of us today would be able to learn from you, to change, and to be like you, Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.